0: The fear and horror of destruction and cruelty which came out of the Russian Civil War uh, affected all of European politics. I mean, it was definitely uh, the birth, if you like, of uh, the Nazi or fascist movements as a result of the horror of what had happened there.
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And this week's episode is a little bit different. I've actually subcontracted out our interview to Robert Lyman, who has interviewed Anthony Beaver. Now, Rob is a great friend of the show, author of the wonderful A War of Empires, and he has discussed with Anthony Beaver all about his new book, Russia. Revolution and Civil War, nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty-one. Now, first off, Rob and I introduce the interview, and then we just wrap up at the end as well. So I do hope you enjoy it, Rob. It's great to to have you take the helm for the podcast. You you are presenting it, 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 it giving me a week off, and so thank you very much for that. But it was uh, I've I've been listening the chat a few times with Anthony and you've read the book which is quite a hefty piece of work and so for our listeners rob lyman who who i'm sure our lessons, listeners have already heard your brilliant chat with me on the war of empires the war in the far east so you are uh, a firm friend of aspects of history and so rob you kindly um interviewed anthony beaver talking about his book russia revolution civil war and just before we started recording you were just saying how you know it's a it's it's a complicated story it covers a four-year period i mean there's so much happening it's funny talking about this i'm currently reading a book on the anglo-irish treaty of 1921 and we've got an irish revolution happening around then as well so yeah there's a lot of happening um but this book is is covers a crucial part of the 20th century, if not the most crucial part of the 20th well, century. Well,
2: I, I think that's that's absolutely right. I w- was struck by quite a number of things when I read the book. In fact, I read Anthony's book twice before I interviewed him, and I hope everyone finds the interview uh, interesting. Um, a, a number of themes um, really uh, struck me, uh, and, and this is a peripheral one. If we think that we're living in difficult times now um, with domestic issues in our in the UK and in Europe, and of course with the uh, Russian aggrandisement in Ukraine. Then, for goodness' sake, uh, think about the early 1920s or the, the late, late latter part of the um, 1910s, where, of course, we had the end of the war. Then we had effectively, you know, half a decade of revolution and chaos in many parts of the world, and. Uh, you mentioned Ireland, of course, you know, that uh, Irish issue had been bubbling since the since the start of the First World War, when home rule effectively had, had been put on the back boiler for the duration of hostilities. There was a, an eruption of violence, of course, with the Easter uprising in 1916. But a resolution of, of that sort wasn't achieved until the end of 1921, and of course then Ireland went into effectively a civil war. Well, that model is very, very similar to what happened in Russia. Effectively, we had the first um, revolution in March uh, 1917, effectively brought about by Russian military failure uh, in the First World War uh, against the Germans and, and, and the Tsar's appalling governance. Uh, and that, of course, was followed by the what we all know as the October Revolution that, that happened in Russia in November, of course, because of the differences in the calendars. So we had two revolutions in Russia in a single year. And then we had uh, a long period of civil war. And these four years, as you quite rightly say, effectively, w- were as long as the First World War. So if you were a Russian, you, you not only went through the First World War, but you went through two revolutions and you went through civil war as well. And you didn't get to some formal normality until 1922. Um, I mean it was an extraordinary period of time and um i mean there was, that's the that's the first and most important thing about the about the period of history that um anthony is writing about in in many respects it's a very very complicated subject and and a big job for him to take on, but I think he's done it superbly well so it's quite it's quite an extra, extraordinary story it's a little bit of a roller coaster because um of course we know what happened next uh, the poor people who were in, involved in the, certainly in the revolutions in 1917, hadn't a clue, but I think there's some really interesting things about it. Um The first and most important thing is how resolutely determined Lenin was, even much more than Trotsky. I think Trotsky was a very effective military planner, actually, but Lenin was the man who who recognized that you didn't need to have a large number of supporters all you needed to have were more supporters than the apathetic uh, middle who who wouldn't wish to put their lives on the line and um and wouldn't cast their vote either way and that's that's a big lesson from 1917 in order for and people ask why the Bolshevik Re- Re- revolution worked it was because the the liberal um, provisional government basically failed to make any sensible decisions and take control of the country. All countries need to have a modicum of control and to feel that they're in safe hands. That was completely lacking after the Tsar stood down. The whites were determined, uh, if we can call them at that early stage, whites, they were determined to retain their prerogatives, their land and their wealth and all the rest of it. They, and they wanted to preserve Russia as a Tsarist entity. Um, of course, the Bolsheviks didn't. So, uh, so that's the important thing. I mean, the provisional government failed. It was um, riven by—I um, uh, wouldn't say intrigues—the right word. I- indecision is the right word. It just couldn't make its mind up. And it's—it's uh, it's a salutary tale, really, for for governance in complex and fragile situations. It's quite remarkable. Well, as, uh, as uh, someone whose name I forget now once said, it's—it's it's often better having any government than no government. And I think. Russia 1917 is a really, really good example of that. But I'll just finish the introduction by um, another, making another point. And that is page by page. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary, quite a big book. I think it's um, 500 odd pages. Uh, but who am I to complain about big books? Mm-hmm. Uh, page after page is a story replete with horror and tragedy and human trauma. It really is the standout feature um, of this book. And I didn't get the chance to ask ask about the uh the, the nature of this horror, but you'll be able to see it as you read it through. It, it just does seem to me that civil war creates greater terror. You know, war between the same tribes and the same communities creates greater terror actually than um state on state war. And, and and that's that was a r- real theme of the book. And it's it is absolutely horrifying. Not not just the slaughter but the way in which people killed each other, it's uh, its quite quite extraordinary. And it, there's no let up. Let me warn you now, it goes on and on and on. It's a book for all seasons, but it's particularly a book for this season as we trudge through the wearisome nightmare of Ukraine and um, and President Vladimir Putin's resurrected um, czarist notions of um, uh, Hegemonic grandeur in Russia, and and that's that's the story. And I think actually, if I if I now look back on Russia over the last century, I see, you know, a a single narrative. Actually, uh, moving, um, we're talking here about changes of, of governance and civil war. We're talking about a, a pretty clear line between the Tsar, back to Peter the Great, and then onwards to Putin, with a a little bit of a. Um, a, st- a stalinist communist hiccup in between i'm exaggerating for effect but you know russia hasn't much that's my point and it's it's very sad to see but it's a reality of the, the the world in which we live but a great book you know a, a quite an extraordinary book a book that i couldn't put down you know once you've got into it you need to be able to stick with it uh but it's worth rereading again and hopefully when the paperback comes out we'll have a list of uh, persons of particular interest at the start to make the um, following the story just that
1: little bit uh, easier okay great stuff Rob thanks 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 for that that. Um, Um, I will now hand us over to you you and and Anthony. Anthony fabulous enjoy
2: Well, thank you very much for coming on this podcast for um, aspects of history. It's uh, I I've just finished reading the book and I need to go back to it again because it's it's a little bit like a fruitcake, isn't it? It's absolutely full of amazing stuff, and um, it's quite an extraordinary experience. I've been thinking over the last couple of days uh, what have been my uh, feelings about what I've picked up from the book, and and um, there are quite a range of them. So I just um, Start by saying that it, you've written a really remarkable story of the disintegration of Tsarist Russia and its eventual transition, after four years of civil war, into the USSR. Following the triumph of a cabal of Marxist revolutionaries who used chaos to seize power, and I think the way in which you describe the chaos of the whole period is really quite profound. And I also think there's some quite uh, strong resonances with what's happening today in Russia. In fact, I, I couldn't but help read the book in the context of Russian nationalism beating its particular drum over Ukraine today. It's, oh, yeah. a really, it's a really big story, Anthony. Huge, in fact. And I was reminded that this was four years of tumultuous history, as long as the Great War, in fact. <clears throat> and I wonder whether you could just start by giving us a feel for the sweep of events between 1917 and 1921.
0: Well, that in itself is a a very tall order. Mm. Um, I think the most striking aspect of that particular period and of the Revolution and Civil War is that it probably was the most influential conflict um, of the early 20th century for the simple reason that the fear And horror of destruction and cruelty, which came out of the Russian Civil War, uh, affected all of European politics. I mean, it was definitely uh, the birth, if you like, of uh, the Nazi or fascist movements as a result of the horror of what had happened there. Um, While on the left, of course, there was the fear of counter-revolution and um, Nazi-fascist crushing of labor movements. So the whole process, the whole uh, chain and events um, and uh, chicken and egg uh, uh, developments, which came from that particular period are actually even with us today. And we're seeing it even though um, we're now seeing more of a split between authoritarianism and democracy. Um, that has taken over, if you like, from the left versus right of the 1930s, but it's all part of this process of evolution. And funny enough, I always wanted to write about it. Um, My first uh, attempt, uh, which thank God was thwarted, was actually uh, back in 1990 uh, when I was persuaded by my publishers actually to do another book instead. And I've always been grateful for that because I simply wasn't ready for it at the time and also because the archives weren't open at that particular stage um so i think i've been very lucky in timing not just because of the uh, of it coinciding with what's happening in ukraine but i was very lucky that um my attempt to write it then um never never took place yes and, i do um, to give an idea of that particular uh, period in one go um is hard i think people at the time even in 1916 were predicting that revolution was bound to come in Russia. Uh, The question was, would it come after the end of the First World War, or would it come during the war? And of course, it came during the war, as we know. Uh, And it was this deliberate attempt to undermine the defense of the Russians on the Eastern Front uh, by Lenin, uh, which actually was one of the most popular parts of his whole program, and this is where The uh, provisional government um, failed to see the dangers uh, and the way that it stood no chance really against that particular argument. Of course, Lenin's promise was one which was completely um, dishonest and misleading because, in fact, he was planning to turn what he called the imperialist war into an international civil war. Um, just as he promised the peasants the land when he had no intention of allowing them the land. It was going to be nationalized. Uh, and the same, of course, for workers in the factories. So basically, we see the Soviet Union being basically born in lies. Um, and uh, should we say that the uh, tendency to avoid the truth um, is something which has certainly continued ever since coming from the Kremlin
2: fascinating things that come out of that let's just pick a couple of them up we'll come back to Mm -hmm. Lenin in a moment but I want to start with this point you've made about the way in which Russia views its history and um, I was wondering whether um, you would have any idea what Vladimir Putin would think about the way in which you've presented the story of Russia's history because you've presented a story that's clearly factual but but very clearly uh, explains the roots of Lenin's purpose and the way in which he lied uh, his way through, you know, with Trotsky and, and, um, and Stalin as well. But primarily this was Lenin's program, lied his way into power. And so what's the relationship between the way in which you have told the story and the way in which uh, Vladimir Putin is, is using history to tell a very different sort of story of um, the, the birth of Russia?
0: Well, uh, Putin's one, of course, is a grotesque distortion of history. Um, He takes it back, um, often even to, not surprisingly, the Mongol invasions of the 13th century and so forth. Um, But that is to spin the whole idea of um, Kievan Rus and the idea that uh, Uh, the Slavic states are forever bound together and in fact should never be uh, separated and so forth. But when he gets to the Russian Revolution, um, we hear this uh, bizarre idea, of course, from um, Putin, that he blames Lenin uh, for allowing that particular moment of self-determination, which actually lost them Finland. It didn't lose them Ukraine at the time, um, simply because um, the Red Forces were very much more powerful in that area. Um, Lenin, of course, in a fairly cynical way, had felt that to avoid the label of great Russian chauvinism, um, the Bolsheviks should permit the idea of self-determination on the grounds that um, we shouldn't worry about that too much because with world revolution, we'll still be dominating them anyway from um, Moscow in the future. Um, that, of course, didn't work out. That was one of his uh, most fundamental miscalculations, um, as we saw in the Russian-Polish war and the idea of trying to break through all the way to Berlin and uh, and Europe in to set Europe alight in revolution. Um, so Putin gets, um, if you like, Putin gets that wrong. Um, but his main... Um, idea his main argument um is incredibly um convoluted to say the least um if you can even call it an argument it's actually a complete total distortion the idea that somehow uh ukraine has become nazi Um, and this actually has far more to do with his obsession with the second world war and the great patriotic war which uh, dominates his idea partly because the Second World War and Victory Day, the 9th of May, is something which every Russian feels that they can feel proud of, even those who suffered in the gulags or anti-Stalins or whatever, and it brings them all together. So any criticism of the Red Army, as I know any too well, uh, of the Second World War um, is seen as a calumny. Um, And uh, this will be certainly repeated in the way that any criticism of Putin's army in uh, Ukraine uh, will also be seen in that particular light uh, when we're talking about the mass rapes of 1945 um, and what we're actually seeing in Ukraine as well at the moment. Um, The looting, the idea that because they represent a higher moral cause of the anti-Nazi cause, um they can get away with what they want and that was very much the attitude in uh, europe and the domination of uh, central europe um by the red army in 45 and it's uh something which uh putin is repeating in domestic propaganda today
2: well let's just stay with that, that point actually um we'll, we'll come back to the others in a moment but this point about looting and rape and uh, and destruction really Uh, and the brutality of the the revolution the civil war is really quite one of the is one of the most profound aspects of your book i mean you you don't pull your punches with this and i'm i'm interested in um how people believe that it was right and proper for them to be able to behave this way and then you remind us uh, very clearly in the book that you know uh, the sacrifice of the people was part of Lenin's philosophy. He he believed that sacrifice was essential and he needed to create this chaos. And I just wonder whether where this came from and, and why it was so successful because there aren't many other parallels in history. I've been racking my brain to think about civil wars that lead to prolonged chaos. You know, order usually reasserts itself pretty well. And you make the point around Petrograd in 1917 that, many of the people in the provisional government were seeking order because they they saw that to be the the answer to creating a new form of polity, but Lenin didn't want it. Lenin wanted to be able to create chaos, and he somehow felt that he would come out top, and he did. I don't really understand how that happened.
0: Well, no, I don't think that Lenin uh, necessarily created the chaos. Lenin was able to exploit the chaos, um, which He encouraged it, he encouraged it. um, And particularly, when one sees the way that it developed during the course of the spring of 1917 through into the summer, um, it was far more linked to the war and to the mass desertion of soldiers uh, from the front. um, Those wanting to get back to their home villages to make sure that they didn't miss out on the distribution of land and basically um, the, expropriation, the well, basically the taking over of both church and landowners' property, Um, what Lenin wanted out of all of this, of course, was the destruction of the past to make it irreversible, to make the revolution irreversible. That was the main point, and he used or um, encouraged um, the idea that the... The peasantry, uh, which the left socialist revolution is referred to as the infantry of the revolution, Mm. Um, as well as obviously the uh, proletarians of the um, industrial workers, um, would basically um, smash the system uh, and open it up and make it impossible for the old order to return. So that was, if you like, the most radical aspect, which actually even terrified some members of the um, Bolshevik Party, um, some of the even members of the of its Central Committee at the time. Um, the whole idea that they were going to create a completely new world, the new Homo Sovieticus, the new man, yes. um, who was going to live in this particular world, and that's why I'm, I'm in the book in a way with Sklovsky's um, use. Of the old Russian folk tale about the um, the devil's apprentice, um, who believes that he can burn up an old man and um, basically restore restore him to youth. Um, This was very much a a powerful metaphor for what Lenin and uh, uh, basically the chief ideologues of the Bolsheviks at the time believed was their mission. Um, But it was a totally reckless one, uh, which was going to sacrifice huge numbers. In the end, we see nearly, um, in fact, probably more than 10 million deaths resulting. so that I think was very much the uh, degree it was totally unprecedented in history it went way beyond the French Revolution
2: I think that's that's why this is such a profound story and and such a staggering one that this isn't just a a revolution and a civil war this is a a turning upside down of the world as we know it and we just get a a really very strong sense from your book that Lenin had this very clear view about what he wanted and the left socialist revolutionaries and everyone else in the provisional government, of course, in the early days, had no idea what uh, trajectory he was on, um, and it just seems quite extraordinary that he managed to to do it um, and weave his way through that that particular chaos to to achieve um, his end game. But it it really is quite an extraordinary story. I, I was also wonder, wondering, actually. I know that you know by you explained by 1920 and 21, of course, the Red Army is very strong and large numbers of um peasants joined the red army as opposed to uh, other groups which they had had you know that they could have joined why was it that the red army was actually so successful ultimately was it simply because it was bigger
0: well it was it had huge advantages one of being um based really on central and western uh russia uh, and therefore had the advantage of internal lines. Um, So the whites in Siberia, uh, Admiral Kolchak in the South, General Dynikin, uh, and in the Northwest, um, General Yudinich, were never able to link up. They were never able to coordinate their attacks or anything like that. But in manpower terms, the the Reds had the large cities, really, of, of Northern Russia. their main advantage was actually the hatred for the whites by most of the peasantry who were afraid that they would lose the land which they'd gained in 1917. Um, Many of the whites uh, in fact behaved appallingly in the way that they were trying to take revenge for having lost their property uh, and wanted to turn the clock back. Those were very much the the czarist officers Um, but the Other part of their coalition, really, were the right socialist revolutionaries, Um, and there was bound to be a fundamental incompatibility. I mean, it's very striking the way that one compares it to the Spanish Civil War, where there you have uh, the internal divisions on the left, uh, unable to face up against Franco and the unified command of the Nationalists. Here we have the opposite, uh, where we have the left, which has the unified command uh, under Trotsky of the Red Army and Lenin. Um, and uh, shall we say a very uh, fragmented alliance uh, on the right of the white. Uh, the real advantage of the Reds, and this is where Churchill was um, shaken and couldn't believe the sudden turnaround in 1919 uh, when it looked as if the whites were about to capture advance on Moscow Um, and suddenly the Red Army is much stronger than the whites. Uh, This is partly because the way they were hated in the rear areas had led to lots of risings and uh, revolts. Uh, There was the Makhno insurrection in that crucial area of eastern Ukraine in the Donbass, which we're reading about so much now. Um, And uh, the Reds were much more intelligent in the way that they offered a complete amnesty to all of their deserters, because basically both sides, they were losing huge numbers through desertion. Um, But they offered an amnesty and a lot of the uh, nearly half a million returned to the colours, um to fight because they knew perfectly well that a, a white victory would actually strip them of the land so even though they hated the communists in many cases um they would still return to fight and this is where suddenly the victory over kolchak in the east combined with this surge of uh re-enlistment uh gave them the vast advantage in that crucial moment of the turning point of the war in um, the autumn of 1919.
2: Yes, and it was very interesting how the the Red Army was able to 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 dominate then, and yet failed to achieve victory in in Poland for for very different reasons. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I I was really sort of surprised at how disjointed and played out the Whites were. Um, you know, they 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 focused around a number of you know individual Czarist officers who didn't actually last the course in most cases. You know, was it just naivety on the white side? Did they think they'd be able to replace Tsarist Russia with something very similar without the Tsar? Or were they just trying to preserve what sort of security they could they could achieve for themselves? What, what was their game
0: plan? I think it was anger, resentment, and obstinacy, basically. Uh, <clears throat> a belief of uh, eternal Russia, um, a belief in the uh, Russian Empire, and uh, one of the major... Uh, geo mistakes, um, was to refuse the alliances which uh, they needed to win, which was an alliance with Poland, with Finland, um, and the Baltic States. But in all cases, they'd been former parts of the Russian Empire, um, and in a totally blinkered way, they made no uh, attempt to conceal their views that they should return to a Russian Empire at the end. So as a result, to Churchill's frustration um these potential alliances, which could have unseated uh the bolsheviks if they'd been timed or handled properly um never came to pass
2: yes yes i mean the, the other interesting thing was uh, that did surprise me not knowing a huge amount about trotsky was actually how how adept he was uh, as a general i mean i was intrigued to find that the the turnaround in, in Petrograd in 1919 was actually caused by by trotsky getting there early enough and persuading the um, the otherwise defeated members of the the Red Army and uh, and the populace that actually they could they could turn Ugarin around and, and they 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 did it was quite uh, quite remarkable. Well, he and, was a um, great
0: actor. He was a great actor, and he loved his moments of drama, and he um, certainly milked them to uh, every opportunity.
2: Yes. This is a little bit all over the place. I had actually started my questions with 1912. So we'll go back to that in a moment, because I think what we need to just have a quick chat about is where all this began. I, I love your first chapter because you describe it as the suicide of Europe. And um, I just get a real sense here of people not understanding the the, um, the unexpected consequences of warmongering. And I think, you know, the way in which you describe the early days of... Um, pre great war so 1912 1913 this great nationalist fervor for uh, um an expression of russian nationalism you know it makes me go hot and cold when i think about what's going on in russia today and the parallels really are quite remarkable so can you explain what, why it was that the um the that russia generally in general terms was so enthusiastic for war in 1914 and yet, why was it that the Russian army collapsed so quickly? We're not talking about very long, maybe a year, uh, a year and a half, two years.
0: Well, the warmongering, um, when even um, a fairly moderate foreign minister like Sazonov suddenly became a warmonger himself, um, came about largely through the humiliation of Russia um, in, with the Second Balkan War. Uh, and the idea that Europe did not take Russia seriously. So, yes, indeed, um, very much, uh, should we say, uh, uh, an echo that we can hear today. Um, and um, the, the Tsar himself, I'm unfortunately, out of terrible weakness, um, did not really see, and he was not an intelligent man, uh, the danger of the whole business of mobilization and the idea that mobilising against the Austro-Hungarians meant that they would then have to mobilise against the Germans. Now, you know, one can go round and round and round, you know, Chris Clark's book and all the rest of it, um, Mm. on how uh, the war developed and to what degree it was the fault of Germany or to what degree, um, you know, uh, it was a blunder and we, Europe, if you like, sleepwalked into war. Um, But there's no doubt about it, you know, the uh the determination the feeling at that particular time amongst the ruling classes in russia where business was booming the rapid industrialization was going ahead uh which has tempted some historians to believe that sort of you know if only there hadn't been a revolution then sort of russia would have worked its way um well out of it in uh but the war of course made made disaster inevitable um I mean, the trouble was that the Russian army, even though it was starting to modernize uh, in certain areas, um, was starting to become slightly more professional, um, was still stuck very much in the past. Uh, I mean, you know, there have been excellent books, Dominic Levens, of course, and uh, and others, uh, Walman and so forth, um, on the state of the Russian army during this particular period. Uh, but there was a, a mentality which still, um, didn't allow it to uh, develop. And as a result, it was much more of a cavalry army uh, in many ways. Um, I and mean, when one thinks, which is inevitable in Russia, simply because the, the distances are so enormous, um, and it was basically cavalry and railways. And of course, this was going to be the future, really, of the Russian civil war, because simply because of this vast uh, Eurasian landmass of which it was um, which, uh, which it was uh, covering.
2: I just get a. I, I want to get a sense of how uh, very quickly the, the Tsarist army turned to look at revolution and to support it, and not not well, perhaps not even revolution, but an ending of the war. This was a war that was imposed on the people by the warmongers and by people whose interests might have been served by it.
0: Uh, the, you have to remember, of course, there was the, the revolution, or the, certainly the rebellions of 1905 following the um, humiliating defeat in the Russo-Japanese War. So already that had embittered huge numbers. Also, it was simply the treatment of um, the peasant soldiers. Um, I mean, as I described, I mean, their, their reaction was what the British army would have called dumb insolence in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no enthusiasm at all. When they left their villages uh, on call-up, um, they were treated as almost, it was almost like a funeral. You know, yeah. they assumed that very few would ever, would ever return. Yeah. Um, and it does go a long way back. I mean, there was an attitude that they were not individuals. They were part of what the, um, the officer class would de- de- describe as the grey mass. So this actually carried on even into the Red Army. I mean, during the Second World War, um, most soldiers' names were simply not recorded. I mean, they were either um, they were either sort of uh, um, press ganged on the march. Um, And it was any officers' names who were recorded or any uh, ordinary soldiers who were investigated by Smash or the NKVD. Uh, They weren't interested in anybody else. So uh, this depersonalization of um, dehumanization, in a way, uh, of the recruits had had a long tradition. Um and not surprisingly, that uh, created huge resentment, and that's why I quote from many of the soldiers' letters at that particular period uh, to give an idea a of the treatment, the appalling way that you know they were left freezing in the trenches or and most of the trenches were sort of waterlogged worse than anything on the even on the western front uh well, their officers you know um spent the nights in peasant isbars behind the line and um and didn't suffer. So there was also that sort of class conflict anyway within the structure. Um, and then the idea that uh, the old order was collapsing went as soon as they heard of the news in 1917, which was very badly handled both by the army and the provisional, uh, the provisional government that was about to take over. Um, they tried to suppress the news of the fall of the Tsar to begin with. And of course that was seen as a way of trying to cheat Um, the soldiers at the front and not surprisingly you know desertion started um, in the most um, unbelievable way Uh, and that carried on developing throughout the course of the year
2: yeah it was quite extraordinary some of the um, the stories you tell of um, soldiers turning against their officers and you use the phrase in your second chapter that the drift towards revolution was obvious to all but the willfully blind. And I think that that's a, a really significant perspective on, on the ruling classes in Russia who just couldn't see what was happening. You know, this large, as you describe it, grey mass of people who actually had their own agency and well led would do would behave very differently to um to the way in which the Tsarists uh, had um, they'd behaved under Czarist Russia. I'm also quite intrigued at the, the importance of Petrograd through all of this. It was really the heart of the revolution, wasn't it? And, um, and how, how important Petrograd rather than Moscow plays out and certainly the early days of the, the revolution. To what extent was control of Petrograd, control of the masses, control of the, the army and control of the the factories important in in Lenin's agenda?
0: Well, Petrograd was the capital, um, so it was bound to be uh, the key place, um, because without control of um, the centre of power, especially in a widespread, huge, vast, six-of-the-world landmass uh, Russian empire, you were not going to have any chance of um, securing power outside. So this is why it was both symbolic, but also um, physically important. And also because Petrograd had such a very large military garrison. Trotsky was wiser in a way than um, Lenin, I think, because he believed that only a very small proportion of the uh, garrison would actually rise up on, on behalf of the communists. But where Lenin was probably more correct was to see that actually apathy was far more important. Many would just simply wait to see which way things were going. Um, so a small determined ban was probably going to be enough when it came to uh, basically the November coup d'etat, um, or October coup d'etat, uh, according to the calendar of the time. Petrograd was also important simply because that was obviously not just the seat of government, but also of um, the Tsar. And that was the first symbol which really needed uh, to be overthrown. But at this particular stage, even the Bolsheviks had no idea uh, of whether they would actually be in power uh, or could achieve power at that stage. What they had to do was to see how a provisional government, which was basically partly liberal, partly socialist, Um, when the two started to amalgamate the two uh, committees, if you like, the Soviet, the Petrograd Soviet, uh, which was socialist, and the uh, uh, provisional government, really, of Rodsyanko and later Prince Lvov, they found, of course, that they had no power, no control. With the collapse of the Ancien Régime and, of course, the police, uh, the Haiti police who uh, had to disappear or were simply murdered or um, lynched in the streets, and of course the Haiti land captains in the provinces, um, there was still there was no control. And this is why one has this uh, outbreak of uh, the looting, the destruction of manor houses and um, properties. And there you have a liberal government who basically has promised the Constituent Assembly of uh, um, a democratic government, um, which needs to be organised and prepared for uh, elections. Well, of course, that's going to create huge frustrations because it can't do anything in the meantime. It says all decisions have to be postponed until it's decided on uh, by the Constituent Assembly. And this is where Lenin, and especially when it came to the army, was in such a powerful position by promising the end of the war, um, achieving huge support from that point of view, but also um, being able to exploit the inability of uh, the government, then led by Kerensky, um, to achieve any, any meaningful uh, measures at all.
2: Yes, I think, uh, I think that sort of naivety really does come, come through very clearly. Let's just um, draw to a close and, and talk about um, the extraordinary uh, treaty at Breast-Lit-Osp, um, which actually you describe brilliantly in the book. It's almost uh, the, the, the original treaty uh, and the, the story around it is, reads a little bit like a novel. But I, I was intrigued at the point you made at the start of, the, uh, start of this, where you describe um, there being a continuum between the idea of um, you know, the First World War, this revolution actually, this revolution, the Civil War, was, was the birth of European fascism. And I was struck that the the treaty in and you know with Germany and the, the Central Powers actually ran has a, a stream that runs through into the Second World War to the extent that the Second World War was almost unfinished business. This dividing up of Eastern Europe uh, at such an early stage.
0: Well, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was, of course, Germany's greatest achievement in the First World War. Um, And let's face it, it was something which marked um, entirely the plans of Hitler um, because the Ukrainian breadbasket and the uh, ability for Germany, if necessary, to survive against the rest of the world, providing it occupied that area and basically turned Uh, southern and uh, western Russia into almost a slave state was something which appealed so enormously to the expansionists um, after the defeat of 1918 and uh, those who dreamed of a future uh, German empire uh, being reconstructed but an eastern German empire in this particular case. So uh, it had a very very profound influence and I think something which we've um, which in sort of Western Europe, we've always tended to uh, underestimate. Um, and something, of course, which has marked uh, modern Russian history more than anything because of the way that the invasion of 1941 of Operation Barbarossa um, led on, let's face it, to the Cold War because it yeah. was t- Stalin's trauma, um, which made him determined that to control the whole of Central Europe uh, through satellite states as, uh, an outer defence line and and
2: that 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 continuum from uh, 1917 through to now is really quite remarkable and i will we'll leave it there but i i think that the the impact or the power of this book is not just the story of 1917 1921 it is the the bedrock of the modern world as we know it and you've described its birth and we can only understand what where the the the, uh, the the political world in which we currently inhabit through a clear understanding of where it emerged from. And I think that's what you've done remarkably well. It's it's a book that we're going to be talking about a lot uh, in the next few months. Uh, it's coming out at the end of May. I, I'm delighted to have had an early sight of it, an early read of it. It really is a remarkable achievement. But as I said, I'm going to go back and read it again because it is a fruitcake. It's so rich. you know. It's, it's, it's full of some quite extraordinary characters and some bizarre things. But... A lot of the themes are, are themes that we'll all appreciate from reading the newspapers today, we'll appreciate from understanding you know, what's going on in, in Russia and in particular in Ukraine. And it really does give a very helpful mindset to uh, a view of the, the, the Russian mindset that uh, we need to appreciate rather than simply looking at what's happening today in a vacuum. We need, this, this, this does anchor it very, very firmly in, in history and, and it, it's a fabulous book. Thank you very much for, for it. Um, and thank you very much for coming on this morning. It's um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be able to uh, to speak to you in advance of the, the publication of the book. And I wish you all the very best with
0: it. Thank you very much indeed, Rob. Yeah, great, great pleasure.
1: So we've just listened to the interview. And now, Rob, one thing that's always come across with me about the Russian army, and I guess it's a bit relevant today, but it's the way that the individual in Russia is is not an important um, uh, part of society. It's the collective. And this goes beyond communism. This this is true. I mean, you get the impression it's true today that it's all about this greater sacrifice, because I think in their military, um, they don't they don't really they don't bury their military dead individually either, do they? So even in death, they're all lumped together in a, in a mass graves.
2: Um, I think there's a, um, yes, that's right, but I think there's a nuance here that uh, is fascinating to look at, and one is that we might say that there is no such thing as individualism in uh, Russia, uh, USSR, and now Russia again, um, but I'm not sure that's entirely true, I think the the way in which the the Russian, the Tsarist, and then the Soviet, and then the Russian state works is to subliminate the individual, and they certainly work very hard to take the power away from the individual because, of course, that then um, challenges their own power. And I think that's the point. I think if Russia, if Russians had a voice and a choice, a a truly free voice, then the uh, individualism would rise to the surface because that's how we're made as human beings. Democracy for all its failings does allow the individual to, to make choices in a way that in both Tsarist Russia and in the Soviet Union, and certainly in Russia today, most of those choices, or many of those choices rather, in a different way, are actually made by the state. And the the, the whole story of the rise of Putin over the last 20 years has been a, a story of him and his the coterie of ex-KGB officers uh, who surround him, bringing power back to a state run by them in which the individual is subliminated. But you do make a very interesting point about the Russian army, because this is a significant characteristic of the Russian army uh, and, and actually always has been, which is that um, the soldiers are effectively military slaves. They are the um, almost like refugees from the old um a czarist regime of serfs. I mean, that's that's the best way of thinking about it. And it's very interesting in the Ukraine to, to see the way that Russian soldiers behave as well, because they don't have much of a, a head for decision making themselves. And they are treated appallingly badly. And you make the point about their graves. And in fact, we all know now that, that when the Russian army invaded uh, Ukraine, they turned up with Vehicles that could incinerate bodies and uh, just disperse the ashes. Uh, The soldiers, and we've seen this in the casualty numbers, just frankly aren't important. the The Russian army today is an army um, of conscript soldiers with professional senior NCOs, sergeants, junior and senior sergeants, uh, and professional officers. And that's very different to most Western armies, where uh, all soldiers, officers, and uh, other ranks are. Are um, volunteers, and it makes a, a very big difference in your willingness to fight and die. Um, in, in the former, it's done on the basis of professional pride and perhaps a little bit of nationalism and so on. In Russia, it's on the basis largely of coercion, which is, of course, why Russia is so dependent on the Wagner group of mercenaries. But, it, you know, the, the whole book, of course, is a, a very clear exposition of how uh, little people have got very little voice. I mean, the number of people who were killed, 12 million people during this four year period is just absolutely staggering.
1: Yeah, that, that really is. Well, Rob, thank you very much for for that really uh, brilliant interview with Anthony. And I really look forward to when you're next on talking about your next book. And <laughs> so am I. Ollie. <laughs> yes. So great stuff. Thanks a lot, Rob Lyman. Fabulous. Thank you.